Hey there, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I think art and creativity make life worth living, make the world go around. So I love talking to people who do those things. And today my guest is an author. His name is Blair Fell. He recently came out with his debut novel, The Sign for Home. And I just finished reading it. Actually, I finished listening to it. I listened to the audio version, which Blair does himself, and he crushes it. He's so good. The book is good, and his narration is amazing. But before we get to that, I want to get a little plug in. I want to remind you that there are two ways you can listen to the show now. You can listen, as you always do, on your favorite podcast app, or you can become a subscriber to DNR Studios. I've joined forces with my old friends, Derek and Romaine, and for twelve ninety five a month, you can get access to my show 48 hours earlier, and you'll get all these other great shows, including the Derek and Romaine show. So to learn about that, go to dnrstudios.com. All right, without any further ado, here is my interview with Blair Fell. Joining me now from Jackson Heights, New York, via Zoom, it's author Blair Fell. Hey, Blair, welcome to the podcast. How you doing, Dennis? Good to see you and hear you and all of the And be together. Ways. I am so excited to talk to you about your novel, uh, The Sign for Home, which I finished reading today. Actually, I finished listening to it. I listened to the audiobook, which you narrate, by the way, and you crush it. You're so uh, good. Thank you. Thank you. I was terrified of doing it. You, <laughs> so first of all, you. you have a rich, deep voice normally, but you're a good actor and you create different characters. You have accents going. You nail it. You crush it. So you should feel very thank you. good about it. Thank you so much. I was really scared about how it would turn out because I've never done an audio book before. And a friend told me about, like, you need to differentiate the characters. And I had done some voiceovers for a TV show I worked on in California when I was working in television, like character voiceovers, but this was different. One, when I wrote the book, I never, first, I never thought it would be published. Second, I never thought I'd be doing the audio book because there's a Flemish character. Right, there's, which uh, you nail. Uh, yes. <laughs> I felt she was going all over Europe. But um, then there's the Caribbean character. There's, yeah, it was... Uh, I bit off a lot when I like realized I had all those characters and I got a little scared. And also I was just getting over COVID. Uh, and the producer who's the director, when you do an audiobook, you just have like one person there with a engineer and the only, you know, like I just went in, I thought we'd, we'd work on the characters and do all this. And he's like, okay, read. Go. And then, so I'm like reading. And then the only um, thing she would ever say is too much. Uh, take it from end, you know, in, like, I don't think I got through one sentence <laughs> without her stopping me, but it, and then it, she did a great job though. She did a really good job. Well, you did a great job. And how long does Thank it take you. to record a full audiobook? Cause I've done it before, but my books were abridged. So they weren't the full thing. And it took was, a few days. This was 10 days at six days. hours a day. Yeah. Yes. Well, it pays off. Um, it, you do a marvelous job with the book. How would you describe what the book's about? The, the basic story is a straight, deaf-blind, young, handsome Jehovah's Witness takes an English class for the summer. And along with his Jehovah's Witness interpreter, he has this gay, middle-aged, agnostic interpreter that's put with him. And they become friends. And bit by bit, the... The young deaf blind man and his interpreter start realizing that 
the young man's family has been lying to him about his life, especially about what happened to a young woman he had fallen in love with when he was in high school. And he and his gay interpreter go on this adventure to find out what happened to this great love of his life. So you also learn about what it is to be a person with Usher syndrome, which is the kind of deaf blindness he has, and what it is to be an interpreter, and all these different identities that know mix up together and create this friendship story coming of age story love story uh i mean primarily i think it's a story about friendship between the gay interpreter and his straight religious client which myself who's been an interpreter since 1993 as well as a writer i experience things like this all the time you know we we have the we develop these relationships that become really close and they don't care that i'm gay they don't care what my background is what my identity is and you know we just become really close and it, that was something i wanted to share in writing this book the book is fiction but it's certainly influenced by all the relationships that I had along the way in the last 30 years. All right, Blair, before we get into the heart of the interview, I want to play a little excerpt from your audiobook to give people a taste of your book, The Sign for Home. Writing English is hard. Brother Birch says when hearing people read what you're writing, they think you're a small child. You aren't. Or that you have developmental disabilities. You don't. English is just not your first language. American Sign Language is. Writing in a language that you've literally never heard is like battling monsters with your hands tied behind your back. No matter how much you try to butt them with your head, they keep knocking you down. The worst are the confusing preposition monsters and the giant verb-tense rodents, sharp-toothed beasts who time and again have eat you, have eated you, has ate you, have will eaten you, this is why Brother Birch is letting you take a class at the community college this summer to make you a better writer. Wow, you crushed that audio. And thanks to Lauren at Simon & Schuster for giving us that clip. Um, when did you start writing it? How long has it been in the works? It was a long time. It was a really hard book to write. I mean, well, start. I've never written a novel before. Uh, so I didn't know I could. So that meant I was like extra careful and slow. I wrote 800 pages. Uh, the book's a 400 page book. Uh, but I had to cut half the book off. Did you cut I, out the dance numbers? You cut out the dance numbers, I'm sure. I, did cut the out the, a lot did of the you cut out all numbers. the orgies? All the interpreter orgies I had to just like put on the side. Right, that's another uh, book. There, yeah, that's another <laughs> book, the interpreter orgy book, which I'm working on right now. I love um, it. But uh, yeah, it was, it was a lot of his childhood I, I yeah. cut out. Um, but yeah, yeah, no, it took eight years, basically. It took eight years to write it, and I gave up on it at a certain point. In six months, wrote an entirely different novel that I forgot about and then went back to this when I kind of saw the the voice that I knew could tell Arlo's story, which was a, a hard thing to find. But once I found that, uh, I was able to finish the book. And then the book ended up winning an award. It was my MFA thesis for college, and it won the top prize there. And then at the beginning of COVID in uh 
May of 2020, I called a friend of mine up, James Hanahan, who's a brilliant writer, novelist, a Penn Faulkner winning novelist. And I said, hey, James, um, I have this book I've been working on. I don't know if it's shit or not. Do you know someone that can tell me if it's shit? And he's like, well, my, my agent will read it. He'll read anything I ask him to read. So I'm like, okay, cool. Let him, and maybe he can tell me which direction I should go. And a week and a half later, his agent called me and said, let's talk, and then sold it. And so it was uh, beginner's luck uh, on that. And that's the story of how that got published, well, which it's is a, nuts. A beautiful book, and it deserves to get published and for everyone to read it. Something you do that's really interesting is you kind of write in two different tenses, whether you're talking about Cyril, the interpreter, or Arlo, the client, the deafblind client. And talk about that decision and, and how well, you came to that idea. Well, that's actually what I was just mentioning about finding the voice. What happened was, so I gave up on the book. I'm like, it's too hard. I can't write this. You know, one, you know, putting the mask on an, of another identity is, is also a sticky subject. Even though I've been in the community for 30 years, I still felt awkward about that. And then I was taking a really bad class at my graduate school, uh, with a, a professor that I think might have been a little bit drunk. I don't know. Anyway, so <laughs> the, it Rudy, was a the Rudy Giuliani class. of professors. <laughs> it was, it was Rudy Giuliani's <laughs> novel writing class. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And, um, and like, but one day after he was told he was supposed to do stuff like this, he brought in a bunch of other published essays and he said, take a piece of the nonfiction piece you're working on and write a paragraph in one of the essays. It's the style of one of the essays you like. So I was reading an essay that was in second person. I'm like, oh, I'm going to apply this to an essay about uh, a friend I have who was deafblind who had me helping him with his uh, dating app profile and because he couldn't really see the, the interface with the app. Sure. So I would like read the messages, put in a text that said, hey, I'm never on here often. Could you text me or email me? And then he'd be able to use some accessibility devices, switch them around to see and exchange with these people he might want to um, hook up with or date with. Anyway, I was writing an essay about that. And so I tried this second person and it was like, angels, ah, right. uh, like Eureka moment. Like this is the voice. This is Arlo's voice. This is how I can pull the reader in and get them to understand a little bit what it might be to be like someone who's deaf and blind. And also it deals the second person, the you voice for those that maybe don't know what that is. The you are looking at your computer you're exchanging the black for white in order to read the text that's three inches high on your monitor you are walking with your cane and the you thing bringing the uh, reader into the to the space of being a deaf blind person but also it relates to the trauma that arlo's uh, experience through his life as someone that's living in this very restrictive Jehovah's Witness family uh, and the loss of his mother and the loss of other people in his life, that uh, disassociation that happens with the second person is why I chose that. And then the other voice, the other narrator is the middle-aged gay interpreter with red hair. That's how I differentiate him from me. Uh, I'm, I have dark brown hair. The narrator has... Uh, red hair. And uh, that one is very much more for my life. I mean, all the stories about deaf and deaf blind people are for the most part 
complete fiction other than situations like that have happened in different ways in my life. Some of Cyril's backstory is indeed my backstory, uh, which all my, all the work that I do, the other novels I'm working on now, all are kind of like auto fiction in a way, but like really far from me, but close to me. Uh, yeah. So that's how I came to the second person and, Second person present tense, first person past tense. Well, it works really well in the book. Well, it works really well. And what I found interesting is when you're writing about Arlo from the point of view of the deaf-blind character, and you talk about this in the book, there's a different way of expressing yourself. Words seem to be missing, but there's something powerful about expressing yourself that way. Like, I found myself really looking forward to the Arlo passages because... The way you say it, like you hero, you like, there's something almost, it cuts through the crap in a way. There's something immediate about the language and the expression. Um, Do you know what I'm getting at? Yeah, no, totally. I mean, what what you're looking at is the dialogue in, not the narration, but the dialogue in the Arlo passages is written in a pseudo uh, American sign language, right. like a transliteration of American sign language. In American sign language, like uh, Chinese, actually, uh, there's no tenses. Uh, there's no verb to be. There's no, interestingly enough, no pronouns. Uh, like in Chinese, uh, he, she, it is the same word. It's ta. In American Sign Language, you point. Right. You point to the, the person or object or thing you're talking about, and that's he, she, it. You don't really say he, she, and it. And you put the time at the beginning of sentences, like in Chinese. Uh, you set the time tomorrow, last year, three years from now, at the beginning of the sentence, and then uh, you go through the sentence without tenses. And interestingly enough, ASL like a lot of deaf people themselves, uh, it's very direct. I mean, at its ideal, you're making a movie for the person when you're speaking. That's at its most perfect, is you are basically recreating the action that happened in in your signs. But it's a very direct uh, language. Uh, and sometimes that can create as I, I explained in like one passage and like, again, I can't talk about individual things that happen, but it's happened before to me where a deaf person, you know, might say, uh, things that would be offensive to hearing people, but they tend to expand on like some details we wouldn't include when we're telling a story and you, you know, ask where the bathroom is and you might hear the story of how his aunt bought a flowered dress and, and all, all these other interesting physical details that kind of go like this, but at its core, it can be very direct and straightforward and clear and, and honest. And it's, it's a wonderful language. When it's you, a wonderful language. When you started interpreting, was that something you found that you liked or that was something did you did you take offense at any point? That that sort of directness was it an adjustment, I guess. Oh, it's not about when I was started interpreting. So what happened was how I even learned sign language at all is I was going to Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C., and I fell in love with my straight best friend, uh, and my heart was broken because he was straight and I was not, and he fell in love with this young woman who was the reason he and I took sign language at Gallaudet because she was, and at first she was kind of interested in me and he's like, yeah, I want to take sign language. And I'm like, Oh great. I'll get to ride the bus with Mike. 
And so I took sign language class my freshman year at Gallaudet, which, if you don't know, is the only liberal arts college in the world for the deaf, which is in Washington, D.C. as well. So Mike and I would go to these classes. I learned sign language, and then, like, my heart broke. And I was just crushed because Mike and uh, this woman, young woman, got together. Oh, my gosh. That's a whole other novel. Yes. And I'm attempting that here and there. And uh, absolute brokenhearted, weeping on the, the campus of Catholic University of America and like dropping out of classes. I'm like, I got to get out of here or I'm going to die. And so Gallaudet had a special student program. And so I, which was for hearing students, although in, in my year, they also took a student who didn't sign and was just oral. But the rest of us, there was eight of us, seven of us were hearing. And I got accepted to study and live at Gallaudet, the Deaf College, and get away from Catholic U. And that's how I really learned more about, I mean, learned sign language and learned about deaf culture. And as I was like learning it, like you would start, like how people would describe you or describe things. Like, for example, my sign name is Blair, which is uh, the letter B hand, which is kind of like your hand with your thumb just turned in and all your fingers together, uh, making a muscle on your arm because this girl who I think kind of liked me a little bit, uh, you always get your sign name from a deaf person. A hearing person doesn't give a sign name. Only a deaf person does. And she gave me that sign name because I had some muscles back then. Right. So that would be, I'd be cocky about my sign name. I'd be like, that's right. Muscles. Yeah, except (laughs) Except sometimes your sign name is really rude. Like some, I've seen sign names. uh, This one gentleman I knew who is from the Caribbean, but uh, he was he was uh, of African descent. His sign name was just rubbing on the skin because his classmates were like, "Oh, he's the black guy," and so they just rubbed the skin, meaning that his skin was different. Uh, It it could be someone's weight or someone's hair or lack of hair or their smile. So it can be very direct about the physical manifestation of that. And sometimes that's kind of the downside of directness. When a deaf person tells me I'm fat, I'm fat. When a deaf person (laughs) tells me I've lost weight, I've lost lost weight. weight. I don't trust hearing people. I trust deaf people. Well, so you this name thing I didn't know about. So my name sign would be different than another dentist. It would be specific to me. Right. It has nothing to do with um, – except for the – like I have friends that are named Pam, for example. It's an easy name to fingerspell, so her name's just P-A-M. Yeah. So sometimes if your name is really easy to spell or fun to spell, a short name that's fun to spell, they'll just spell it. But usually like for Dennis, you wouldn't fingerspell Dennis – uh, unless you were a very unloved, isolated person, uh, you know, and they might like, oh, your your smile or some other quality. Sometimes name signs will default to like a a letter on your opposite shoulder or something, but it's usually like something to do with your physical attribute. Well, that's interesting. Um, I cried multiple times listening to it. Um, did you cry writing it? I don't remember if I cried writing it. But I did cry when I was reading it for the audiobook. You have to understand, I never read the book straight through until I did the reading of the audiobook because I just like every time I went back to the book, if I started looking at a section, I'd try to fix it. And so I actually never just sat down never and went read on the it. Ride. From the- Right. I never went on the ride. And when I did in the audiobook, we had to stop several times because I'm like, 
oh, this is good, you know, or actually like in the acknowledgments, I was a wreck during the acknowledgments. I'm like, I want to thank my agent because <laughs> I, I am really grateful to my agent. And then like my, my writing group, which is like the most important thing for me as a writer is my weekly writing group. Like I could not get through their names. I was just a wreck, but like, yeah, at like certain points in the book, I, it, it did move me. And I felt really for the first time, I, I think I felt really proud of the book reading it all the way through. I mean, it was a hard ride, but I feel it was worth it. So I'm glad about that. I know one of the people in your writing group list, Don Cummings, who I've actually had oh, on the right. podcast before. So I was like, oh, right. I know that guy. Yeah. So, so the writing group's been a very helpful thing for you throughout your whole process. Oh, my God. It's, I mean, it's, what happened was in, I guess it was 2013. I'm like one of those guys that loves New Year's, not for any parties, but I'm a goal setter. And it's like... It's not like, oh, I'm going to make a commitment and then never follow through. I like follow through. So I'm really careful about sculpting what my, you know, the the habits I'm going to try to do to develop stuff. And I knew because I was switching from being a playwright, television writer to like whatever I was going to become. I said, okay, you're going to do two achievable goals. One was you're going to just apply to an MFA program. You don't have to get in, just apply. And you're going to find a writing group. And I applied to City College of New York to their MFA in writing. And Don was like, hey, there's these women in Park Slope. They have this writing group. He wasn't in it yet. He joined later when I started boasting about how great it was. Um, (laughs) And he got me into that writing group, which meets every Tuesday night at from seven to nine every single week, which is not how writing groups usually are. And so every week, because I am a deadline whore, every single week, I'd be bringing in 10 pages of something religiously. Like they kind of look at me like, He's a little weird because, like, every week I would have 10 pages. You were the and I, Tracy I wrote, Flick of the writing group, the overachiever? Uh, yeah, I'm definitely – I mean, I'm just uh, obsessed with following rules. And if the rule is you're supposed to bring 10 pages in, god damn it, I'm going to bring 10 pages in. And uh, I I wrote two novels. I don't know how – I didn't bring the – that sec, the real second novel, the one I wrote in six months, I never brought that into the writing group. I just like kind of wrote that on the side, um, and I didn't bring it in until recently when I was trying to decide what the the next 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 novel is because I'm working on the official second novel, a polish of that now. And then I brought that in. They actually like they like both the the third and the fourth novel ideas. Anyway, I'm I'm off the point. The writing group saved my life. That's my point. It's amazing. If you're a writer and you're not in a writing group, find people you respect, get in a writing group, and stick to a really rigid schedule, and it's just life altering. What did it mean to you when you finally held a published copy in your hands? Where were you? I well, I was in my living room because they sent me a box. I videotaped it <laughs> because, like, you got to do that promotion on social media thing, which I do and I hate, but you have to do it. That's part of being a writer these days. And uh, it was cool. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. The coolest part, the most exciting part. This is going to make me sound really lame. Uh, getting an agent. <laughs> Because <laughs> I had been an actor and I'd been a screenwriter. And so, like, 
getting an agent for a novel, I never thought I could write a novel. I wanted to have a lover who was a novelist. I didn't think I could do it. And that, that someone, even this one person who I didn't know the quality of an agent he was when I first got him, he's uh, also was the agent for Silver Lining Playbook and Cloud Atlas. His name's Doug Stewart from uh, Serling Lord Literistic, and he's brilliant. Um, that was the most exciting day, and it's really, really high up there, exciting day, followed by the day it sold at auction. Those were the two most exciting moments of it. That doesn't mean this the most fun. I actually really liked working with the editor and the copy editor, but the excitement was that, that like, hey, dude, someone who never thought they could write a novel, you actually can write and sell a novel, which means if you want, you can do this for the rest of your life. And that was super exciting for me. Well, the agent thing I really relate to because I've never really had that in my career. Like I've had two books published, but I got both of them on my own and then an agent negotiated them. And the agent was never somebody that really, you know, helped me that much. Um, I got the deals Television myself. and film, it's more like, it, it, for me, my experience uh, as a playwright and then as a television writer was kind of what you had is like they came along after my work got its own thing right. and then they came along and negotiated stuff. I never knew that agents actually <laughs> helped you get work. Not only that, in book writing, this book writing agent, I don't think that Doug's alone in this, he actually gave me way more feedback than the editors did. Interesting. As far as like the big issues. Yeah. Like we did that in about two months. And also his assistant actually really helped. Maria gave me a really great note that affected the book. Uh, right. You say so, that, yeah. that the, in the acknowledgments, like there was a light bulb. I'm on. not kidding. I'm not kidding. She was like, hey, you know this? And I was like, holy shit, that's brilliant. And, uh, and, and I did that change and she was right. And Doug said things also that really... Again, these were only these weren't many notes, but it's like, hey, the shift in that character. Maybe you need to do this a little bit more to make that believable. Hey, this character maybe tone down that aspect of it there. And then she's like, you know, you're doing this with this one character. Maybe you want to make her her or him. I don't want to give anything away. Make this particular decision, and it was like. Yes. Yes, Maria. I love you. Thank you. You're right. It was, it was an absolutely joyous experience. The, the reworking of the book and even the copy edits, which in my mind, I was having a conversation with the copy editors who, who did stuff like, you know, you say that he's 17 in this chapter and the next chapter he's 16 and it's Tuesday. In the chapter before that, you said it was August. Now it's June. And I had like, you know, when I'm writing, I'm like 17, 16, June. So, you know, right. I never I didn't follow any of that. No, so I, I had to like do that yeah, with I the copy editors. I totally get it. Now, you mentioned an auction. Was there like a bidding war moment where you're just on the phone like somebody at Sundance and like, was it ex- like there that kind was of thing? a small bidding war? Yes, yes, right there was. On. Yeah, no, that and was you're getting cool. phone calls. You're getting phone calls. Yeah, uh, uh, Doug would would call. Then he'd call back, and he's like, "Okay, this is they've up their offer to this." It wasn't like an extensive, long uh, bidding, but it was like a few a few different places, and uh, one of them came in after it sold as well. But uh, I'm really happy with my publisher. Uh, there were some. The cover of the book, which I love, doesn't really represent the book, but 
it's, it's a beautiful cover you will see on the shelves. Uh, and then the, the, the copy, I just went with them that they knew what they were doing. And I think they did know what they were doing. But so often people are like, well, it wasn't what I thought the story was going to be like, but I right. loved it, which is great for me. So I think it's pulling people to it with this, oh, it's this happy romance. It's a love story. It's a coming-of-age story. I'm hoping in, um, they're changing the text a bit on the blurb for the paperback, which will be coming out, uh, I guess, next year. Right on. Um, your character, Arlo, uh, is deafblind. And I'm reading this, and I'm going, gosh, that must be a challenge as, for a person. And then I read that he's a Jehovah Witness, and I'm like, oh, God. He's got <laughs> that, too? And I'm really down on religion right now. I'm kind of really down on it. And... I just watched Under the Banner of Heaven on Hulu, which is about the Mormon that that. Oh wow! Mormon, so. I, I, I was raised Mormon too. Like I used to, I think I was brought up to believe that people of quote unquote faith were better people, and then there was a point where I'm like, oh no, they're the same. Now I'm one. Now I think they're worse. I think they're worse. I'm in a, it's a hot take, I know. And I don't mean yeah, that across the board, I think but maybe it, I, think I do. it varies depending on the <laughs> faith and stuff. I'm, I'm, is, is that what I'm watching right now? I'm watching the one about, uh, what's his name? In is it Andrew the, Garfield? No, the no. this is a, a documentary with about the... Oh, Warren Jeffs. That's a different yes, one. Yes, the one about Warren Jeffs. I haven't watched that. On yeah. HBO. It's amazing. But yeah. other than the poly, poly, uh, polygamy... So many of the things are similar to what uh, Jehovah's Witnesses do with their kids, like not allowing them to associate with other people. You know, the whole, you know, if you don't go to heaven, you will be go to oblivion. You know, it's not hell. It's oblivion. You disappear forever. Uh, all of that. Well, there's this idea that's in Mormonism that is similar to what you write about in the book, which is that this life is just a test for the next thing. And that... Right. And there's a line that you used in the book that I must have heard 20 times when I was growing up every week. Be in the world, but not of the world. Yeah. And I was just like, oh. And now I look back and I'm like, you should always be of the world. The world's pretty cool. Like, Yeah, the world is awesome. The world is awesome. And so I related to those ideas, but I was like, oh, does he have to have to deal with that on top of everything else? You know, the, this lost love and his disability and that as well. And it, what made you want to write about uh, I tell you, I felt the same way. To this. I'm like, really, Blair? Really, Jehovah's Witnesses too? Right. He's not only deaf, blind, right. but he's a Jehovah's Witness. Right. This is like, you know, when I create a work, you know, be it a play that you know I used to write, or now this novel and the other novels, I'm very much of a, you know, one of those collagers that like I'm. Um, like walking along and then something just pops into my life and I'm like, okay, I'll put that in. Uh, oh, I've done that, that when I'll I'm working. I've done that when I'm working on books and it almost feels like you're being a scavenger. It almost feels like cheating. Like I, I remember being in a lunch place and overhearing a conversation. and I'm like, thank you. I'm taking it and literally putting it into a chapter and it ended up published like two months later. Like, like it really felt like shady in a way. Like just me, I feel, I feel or blessed. Yes, but it also feels the opposite, which is divine. Yes. It feels like a miracle just happened, and this was given to me, and what's, what is it my business to disagree yeah, with, can't question with the, 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 the great universe? Yes. Exactly. In one of my first plays, I was uh, I did this serialized play in New York called Burning Habits back in the 90s that became like a cult hit. Yeah, I, I remember I would hearing write about it. it. I, I would write it every... I would write it 
over four days. It would be an hour to an hour and a half play that I would write in four days. You do it every actual, week. For eight, I, the first one was only eight plays. The second one was four plays. And I would give the scripts to the actors, and they would have to memorize it over a week. And then we would have one day of rehearsal, and it would go up on Monday night in a bar called Crowbar. That was the first draft. Then I would uh, rewrite it and improve it as we went along. But I was auditioning this woman named Mary Ellen Kopp uh, for a role, uh, a lesbian detective called La Butch Nikita. And we were walking by a dumpster. And there was a, a female mannequin in the dumpster. I'm like, oh, my gosh, let's get that. I'll, I'll put it in the play. And it became a character in a play, which a love story happened with the mannequin in the play. That was this beautiful plot line. And it was about a mannequin being found in a dumpster by this, uh, you know, woman that would become a lesbian later and was in an abusive relationship. And it was just like I, I found there, like, oh, stuff is given to you. Use it. It's the same way how the book was written is you don't – I don't know what the characters are going to do. I do an outline. The characters laugh at me, and they say, shut up, Blair, sit down and follow us, and they tell me the story. One summer, I, when as the book was starting, I was working with an ex-Jehovah's Witness because, as I say in the book, there's a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses that work in the ASL interpreting field – uh, where I live, New York. And, uh, and I'm like, he was fundamentalist Christian to begin with. And I'm like, maybe he's a Jehovah's witness. And then I started interviewing Jehovah's witnesses and, and there are good Jehovah's witnesses, sure. great interpreters that are Jehovah's witnesses. And then there's assholes. And, uh, I'm not a fan of the religion, but whatever, just don't be an asshole. Like my motto. Yeah. That's a good motto. I learned a lot reading your book about, the deaf community or the blind, the deaf blind community. I learned things about the ACA. I learned things about devices. How important was it for you to sort of explain some of those things, but also keep the story moving? Like, how did you, how did you, cause I could tell like, oh, wow, I really feel like I've, I, I've learned something about this particular thing without it feeling like a PSA or slowing down the story. You know, that's interesting, and that's a, a, a great point. You're really smart, Dennis. I just have to say that. Thank you. You're very smart. Um, it was really – it was a hard thing to do, but it was something like they're not going to understand this story if they don't understand what it is to be deafblind, if they don't understand what it is to be a Jehovah's Witness, if they don't understand what it is to be an interpreter, they're not going to be able to understand this. But I also don't want to be – you know, boring when nice. I'm explaining this. And I think that uh, the second TV show I worked on when I was living in California was called California Connected. I was specifically hired to make boring stuff about like community board meetings across California funny right. <laughs> and interesting. That was like why I was hired. And I think doing that show for like three years, I learned how to be able to explain stuff, but keep it moving and keep it interesting. And I think that really served me in this book in like, you can like inform people of things, but keep, make sure the plot is moving forward. Make sure the character development is moving forward at the same time as you're letting people know about things. I hear it again and again, people are like, I really love this book and I learned so much as well as going on this wonderful love story, friendship ride. And that's like the greatest honor that I was able to like kind of get them to know a little bit more about this, you know, the deaf blind world and the interpreting world, but also like have fun and feel something. So I feel really proud that that I seem to, if anything else, I've been successful at that. Well, a lot of the things that you 
use and that you explain are part of the story. They affect the story, like the Americans with Disability Act. The main character doesn't know everything about that and what he's entitled to, and that's part of the story. And also there's something called, is it called tactile interpreting? Uh, there's tactile interpreting is just the normal interpreting I would do with the deaf blind person. Right. But there's this new language, philosophy, way of life developed by deaf blind people themselves called protactile. Protactile. That's what it is. Extremely new. Extremely new. It's out of the deaf blind community in Seattle and Minneapolis. One of the informants for the book, and I always want to mention this. His name is John Lee Clark, and he's this brilliant, brilliant deaf blind writer who has a new book of poetry out this year. And we'll have a new book of essays out next year. He is amazing. And um, he, you know, taught me a lot about both, uh, you know, the deafblind experience, but also pro-tactile. And pro-tactile is a way when, when I'm going to have to like visually describe this. If I'm doing tactile sign language, that's where the deafblind person puts their hands on top of my hands and just feels my signs. So they would do that. And then when it's their turn to talk, I put my hands down and they just sign regularly like any deaf person. And I see with my eyes and understand them in the deaf blind world. If they're talking to another deaf blind person, they have to continually touch each other. And now that's developed into pro tactile where they insist anyone that's talking with them doesn't stop talking to them pro tactile touch is its own way of communicating its own sense. And uh, for example, like I'm getting so much, we're doing this on zoom and visually I'm getting information from your face. You nod your head, your eyes squint, all this other information. And when I would do tactile sign language with a deaf blind person, we're separated when, when they're talking to me. And so if I wanted to let them know that, Oh yes, I understand. I have to kind of interrupt their, their, Right. You know, talking and and say, uh, uh-huh, or say, yes, I understand. And it's just this disruptive thing. In protactile, there's never – your hands never stop touching each other or their body, like uh, just saying like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. This is also both in haptics and protactile. It's you tap. It's the flat of my hand just tapping the shoulder, tapping the leg is uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. A grab of the, the shoulder or leg and shaking it means hold on a second. Uh, yes is the fist tapping its head on the body. And so there's this, this whole dance of communication is going on uh, tactually that is, it's just over astounding. The first time I did pro-tactile with John Lee Clark, where he insisted I do it with him, he wouldn't just take tactile sign language from me. He wanted me to do pro-tactile with him. You're up really close and you can't necessarily see your hands because you're right next to each other because you're both holding each other's hands. So I had to do some of it just by feeling his hands. Also in protactile, you might use your interlocutor, the person who you're talking to, part of their body to put the language on. Usually in sign language, all the language is on your hands as you're speaking. Right. With protactile, you might take just see the the word for tree is you your hands like in a five shape and you put it on your other hand and that's tree right and then maybe you take the other hand and you make a little person climbing up the tree that's a person climbing the tree someone takes like a saw and they chop down the tree and your hand falls over in protactile you very well could decide your interlocutor 
their arm is going to be the tree. So I take your arm, Dennis. I make it the tree. I use my other hand as the little person climbing up the tree. And then I take my hand and chop down your arm as the tree and the tree falls over. So both your bodies become the language that's creating the scene so you can feel it. And then to think of all the other communication that comes with the feel of a hand or the, the, the feel of a hand on your body. There's, it's just, it's an incredibly deep, powerful experience. And this is brand new, like I'd say over the last 10 years being developed outside of Seattle, straight from the deafblind community themselves. But it's also political. It's also cultural, but it is, they're trying to get it designated as a language now. Wow, it's really interesting, and it almost would become like an art form. Like, there's a lot of creativity to it. Would you find? In sign language itself is yeah. is is an art form. It's it's like you you meet some people, and they'll just be like basic signing, da da da, and then you'll meet someone that's just like an expert, just like really a great artist, and you're watching them, and you're like, holy crap! And it's like they're doing like playing with words and movement and like i'll, I'll just gonna um, again i'll try to describe it yeah. like this one amazing deaf interpreter i know he did this thing once and it just the, the 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 sense he wanted to give is oh my god there's some gossip i want to hear that and so he put his hands against his head two hands like floppy dog ears right and then he went whoop and the um the floppy dog ears went up, meaning let me listen to that. Right. So that kind of fun playing, which it's not a word for that. I mean, you could describe it as you're interpreting or voicing that, but that was just his creativity doing like fun with visual language. Have you ever found the way somebody does sign language sexy? Like, oh, they there's something going on there. Do you know what they're, they're a flourish? Just the way you would somebody, the way yes. somebody walks or the way somebody dances or the way somebody. Yes. Yes. I mean, first you would have like, Oh, is that person sexy? And right. then like, then you might find something they sign sexy. And then there's other people that just like how they sign is sexy. I have noticed there's a certain group of straight guys that are deaf that will tend to sign like a little bit macho and keep their signs a little bit not flourishy and really kind of like and it's actually a little bit harder to understand to be right. honest it's like the, the Vin Diesel, really fast, really the small. Sylvester Stallone yes. vibe, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Clint Eastwood right. signs. Oh. Really challenging uh, for me. They make you work for it. They make you work for um, it and they're not going to be all fancy schmancy. Is it tiring to interpret? Do you, do you, I, I would think you have to be on and sharp. I would think like, okay, you'd have to take a break at, at a certain point. Like, what is it like to just do it? Yeah, well, in fact, it does. I mean, that's why there's a team interpreter in this college class for Arlo in the book. If a class goes over an hour, you have to have a team interpreter now. And that, what that means is uh, another interpreter myself, I do 15 or 20 minutes on, and then they do 15 or 20 minutes on me, them, me, them, all through the class. And one of the reasons for this is it's very uh, taxing on the body because even though like deaf people are signing all the time, when you're interpreting, your mind is hyper-focused, like so focused on getting the message in the ear, getting it out the hands. And sometimes you can be harder on your body and you can get tension in your neck. And so there's a lot of injuries that uh, interpreters suffer because of this. And so doing the the breaks, the 20 minute breaks, and also the mind, uh, spoken language or sign language, after 20 minutes, there's diminishing returns on how well you're doing in interpreting uh the language so you again you can go for an hour and, and or if it's like in a situation like 
it's just like a one-on-one job where the deaf person's talking to one other person. And so you'll be signing, your hands will be down, you'll be voicing, you'll be signing, you'll be voicing. That gives you breaks naturally. But when you're just doing a lecture and your hands are going, you know, for a really long time, that can, that can be, that can cause damage. Right. And I read in, in the book, you talk about somebody having a kind of arthritis probably from it. Yeah. I've seen um, interpreters develop arthritis uh, that uh, they might just be, have it like naturally their their body but they can also like as far as like hitting themselves too hard getting too tense in the, in their in their signing or i mean i have like some arthritis like in one of my fingers a little bit now after doing it for you know 30 years uh yeah but there can be like also carpal tunnels a big one neck injuries yeah and i i also read that they they like you to wear black or something that doesn't compete with what's going on. That was interesting to me. Right. Something that's in contrast with whatever your natural skin tone is. Like I, I'm like, I'm tan skin, but I still, I wear black or dark gray to contrast with my skin tone. If someone has darker skin tones, then they would wear a lighter color. You never want something that, uh, your hands will like melt into the color of your, of your shirt. Uh, with deaf blind people, it's particularly important, uh, to wear a contrast in color. Uh, because if this is at all close to my hand color, my shirt, I'm actually wearing an interpreter shirt at the moment. Uh, they won't be able to see it. The other thing is you don't wear patterns again for a deaf blind person. They would lose your hands if they have like some limited vision, you know, they're not going to be able to see that, uh, because a lot of people with usher syndrome, as the book explains, it's, it's, it's on a continuum. It doesn't mean every de- uh, person with Usher syndrome will become completely blind. Uh, it, it all just depends on the person. Some like Arlo become blind pretty early. I mean, he still has this little tiny uh, ability of vision. Like if things are written really huge on a piece of paper and he uses a magnifying glass, he'd be able to like determine the letters, but he can't see color anymore. He can't really make out someone's face other than in silhouette. Uh, but it varies. It varies with that. So you want to have a dark color on. So if they have some vision, they'll be able to make out better what your hands are doing. Well, something that comes up in the book, and it must have come out up in your career a lot, is this idea that you're my interpreter, you're not my friend. But if you spend months with somebody, you start to develop an affection and there's a relationship. And so you can keep saying you're not my friend, but there's real feelings there, right? Yeah. And that's something that that comes across beautifully in your book. But I imagine it's hard. Yeah, I mean, mean, the fact is you do become friends. Uh, The whole thing is you have to always monitor yourself that you don't make a decision like just say I'm working with you for six months in college and – you're like, I'm really like confused about this question on a test. Uh, could you help me with it? It's like, no, I can only interpret the question for you, but I can't. And that's also tricky in sign language. Like for like, I don't do like little kid interpreting, but it's like, if you're doing a spelling test and you have to tell them the word, but some words in ASL are spelled words, which is really tricky. So how do you tell them the word that like bank, for example, is basically a gloss of B-A-N-K. So like if you're giving them that word, so you have to just do all these things to like how do you do this maybe show them a picture of it if they're it's a spelling test for other things but you have to like analyze yourself and like i right now am just the purveyor of language i can't help them even though i like this person but i can't overstep what the 
purpose is of that moment, which is a test. And it doesn't matter if they're my friend. I am still the voice of the hearing person saying, this is the question. What's your answer? Uh, so that end, it just like... You know, you get into situations where you have to tell people they're dying. You get into situations like I've done everything from, you know, I, I won't go into, but like really serious, intimate hospital procedures. Once I was on the floor of a hospital looking up at a person that was having spinal surgery, you know, all these very intimate experiences. And you, as you get close to them, you have to monitor yourself that. Your job is to get the language across and to do cultural mediation and don't allow those emotions to get involved, which is sometimes very, very, very difficult. Right. I could see it showing on your face. I could I could see being moved to tears. I could, you know, but you're like, I've got a I've got a job to do. I gotta respect these yeah. parameters. Um the the interpreter character, Cyril, gay man, he's in Poughkeepsie, which I've always heard as a funny name, but it's described as sort of like a town where there's not a lot going on, and he feels a bit stuck, like, he feels stuck in his life. And is that something that you've related to at different times in your life? Like, where did that part of his character come from? <laughs> it, I mean, where I, I grew up northeast of Philadelphia in the suburbs, and there was, like, a little bit of that feeling there as a teenager. But also any time, like, I visit a small town, and this is my own New Yorker, you know, prejudice. I remember being with a group of my friends. We were going to the Grand Canyon, and we are on the road, and we stopped at a little diner. And it was like a classic diner with women with beehive hairdos. And the busboy was a flaming 15-year-old. And I say that with all the love in the world. He was very, you know, uh, obviously gay and young and... And all I wanted to do was like rescue him. Right. I wanted to like run, Make little a run Jimmy, for it. Yeah. run, get to the city, get to LA, get to New York, get to Chicago, San Francisco, get out of here. Uh, so there's a, an element of that of like just wanting to save a character that's stuck. Uh, both Cyril and Arlo are stuck. In, and it's not that Poughkeepsie, Poughkeepsie has a lot of promise, frankly, to be honest. And an adorable name, yeah. It's a, an adorable name, but like where it's located, all the towns around it, people have gone insane during COVID buying them up. But Poughkeepsie, people haven't done that. And if you know it, it's this town with a lot of Victorian architecture, but then it just has not taken off. It was the home of IBM years and years ago. And like the book talks about it, that closed down. And now it's a bit of a wasteland right there. Yet all around it are all these like weekend homes for New Yorker, but not New Yorkers, but not in Poughkeepsie. Uh, but yeah, that, it just like that... That feeling of myself that I've had at times, and that feel feeling I've seen of others where I just need to move on in my life, but I keep not doing that. I, I keep not keeping my promise to myself to move ahead. And there's been times in my life I was like that. And and it's really sad and heartbreaking when you're there or when you see people that are there. And that's just like I have this like big <laughs> uh obsession with fixing myself and fixing people like i'm the classic we'll talk to people on subways and tell them how they change their lives right get um, that new year's list going let's start that new exactly, year's exactly exactly um i've noticed sometimes in my writing that the characters are close to me or they're based on friends or whatever i'm afraid sometimes to put them through things to, to have bad things happen to them or have fights you're not your well, characters go through shit. Like, there's certain scenes that I'm thinking of where it could have gone one way or another, and I was like, oh, 
he's going to go there. Um, does that idea resonate to you at all? Or, or do you have any thoughts about yeah, that? I mean, I, hadn't, I mean, truthfully, when the book was, <laughs> I had 800 pages, Arlo went through a lot worse, which yeah. is hard to believe. Um, like, I think it was my mentor in school, David Groff, who was like, yeah, I don't think he needs to go through that too. Yeah. So I took that part. I had to shorten the book anyway. So it was like, okay, I'm going to take that whole plot point out. Uh, no, I life is hard. I've gone through some really shitty things in my life and most people have. And I mean, as I kind of explained earlier about the gestation of myself in becoming to knowing sign language was off that heartbreak I had as an undergraduate. Everything in my life has come from the worst moments of my life. Everything good in my life right now you know, stems from two major heartbreaks in my life. The first one with my, you know, infatuation, my straight best friend, but then my, my first partner, uh, is, it's a long story, but he passed away and it was devastating. And both of those instances led me to the person I am now. I, you know, because of that instance, I became a writer because of that instance, I became an interpreter because of that second heartbreak, both this book and the other and the next book I'm writing are directly related to that. And, you know, and and so in my characters, I want to see what they do, you know, face with these things that I faced or maybe haven't faced. I also was raised fundamentalist in the school I went to, not by my parents, but I went to this fundamentalist Christian Lutheran school uh, until seventh grade, which was a nightmare. Um, it was the, that's where Red Star, the Red Star Red thing Star. comes from. In the it's book. like every time Arlo thinks yeah. he's going to do a sin, yeah. Red Star. I mean, what they did in my school was in, on Monday morning they'd be like. Uh, did you go Sunday school? Yes. Okay. You got a, a green star there. Did you go to church too? Uh, no yellow star. Did your parents go to church? No red star. Um, and what if it's, it's all just fantasy? What if it's all just made up bullshit? What if it's Harry Potter it with is. older books? It's Harry Potter with older books. Stop it. It is. Anyway, I mean, it is. that's where I've sort of landed. Um, Arlo's handsome, which I think, yay, he's cute. Yay. Yes. Um, did you have somebody, a, a look in mind or a model in mind or, or talk about that aspect of his character? Uh, that's interesting. Uh, I, he kind of changed for me in my mind at different points. I knew I wanted him to be very different than Shri, uh, the young woman he falls in love with in high school. Uh, so I just knew I wanted him to be of a different race and a different look there. But I also, I was very, so John Lee Clark, the deafblind writer I told you about, yes. when I was talking to him about what he, erotic, he's straight, and what he eroticized in women, he said, a woman's head is just skin and flesh to me. It means nothing. It's about the feel of her hands, uh, you know, the feel of her wrist, what she's talking about. That's what I am attracted to. And I thought that was really interesting, but also I'm a gay man who works out. I have been extremely vain all my life, you know, feeling like I wasn't good enough or those rare moments feeling like I was good enough. Both of them have, you know, have all been in that, you know, sense of like what I look like, what my voice sounds like. That's what I fall in love with initially with someone. That's what must people must love about me initially if they like me. And so what do you do with a main character who can't hear 
your mellifluous voice, who can't see your chiseled cheekbones. I don't have chiseled cheekbones, listeners. Um, you know, what is that? What does that mean? So I'm like, okay, Cyril, like, there's a moment where he looks in the mirror and he's like, oh, you know, he's like, you know, 40-something years old. He's like, maybe I should get some Botox. And then he's like, uh, I can't because your facial expressions are grammar, more than just grammar in sign language. They also can be part of your language. And uh, so it's like, it's rough for an interpreter to get Botox because if they have a frozen forehead, deaf people hate people that have frozen faces, like dead face. That's like I'm, so interesting. Yeah, because, I mean, this is a question. Dennis, yeah. how are you doing today? I wonder if oh, oh. I wonder if they were if they were being honest, the Dakota people would have said at these Hollywood parties for the Oscars, like that they that the faces were like. <laughs> I'm, I wonder if they have any observations about that dynamic because the Oscars are ground zero for Botox, right? Um, oh, everywhere yeah. is right now. Yeah, um, except sure. my face, which I need it. Then oh. You look donate. great, by the way. You look great. Oh. It's true. Uh, thank you. Um, anyway, so the, the looks thing were important to me because I wanted it not to be important to Arlo. But I also, like, you know, wanted to signify that, you know, he was a good-looking guy. And then I won't say what happens, but there's a little makeover that happens in the book because I'm a gay and I love a makeover. Who doesn't um, love a makeover? <laughs> exactly. I, I think if I could tell younger artists, creatives, something, one thing I might tell them is, like, the things that we have to do for money along the way, I think we, I think we're meant to feel crummy about that. Or, oh, I wish I was on a film set. Why am I doing this stupid thing? And I would tell them, don't feel bad about that. It's it, you have to do it, and sometimes you'll find it's a great gift. It will be the most interesting part of your life, and it, it's also a little bit free from that showbiz neuro, neuroses or something. I, I, so how did, how did your attitude feel about what you were doing? Did you always like it or did you always feel like, gosh, I wish I were putting up my play on Broadway right now? All of that. I've felt all of that. It's that's such a great you're yeah, you're very perceptive, Dennis. Uh, and also we're, about we're similar topic. ages. And I think I relate yeah. to you a lot in a lot of ways. And uh, yeah, so thank you. That whole plan B thing. Right. Is like a, a huge thing for me. So. What happened was, so I had learned sign language while I went to Gallaudet, and then for a number of years, well, first I was an actor, and then I did a couple TV shows, like parts on TV shows, and I realized I really did not like being an actor, and then I'm like, what am I going to do? So I worked for an elected official for uh, in New York for a period of time, got fired for telling off a nun, and then I'm like had a eureka moment that instead of falling in love with a writer, I was going to be a writer too. At first it was just going to be a playwright, but like I decided to become a writer and I'm like, okay, so now to earn money, I have an option, wait tables or do something else. As the universe decided, someone said, Hey, this place called New York society of the deaf really needs interpreters. Why don't you screen to see if you can do it? Because back then they had very low requirements to become an interpreter because it really wasn't a career probably until, I don't know, the late 70s, the 80s. I'm not sure when it became a career, but it was the the minister that has deaf people in his congregation would do it. Uh, children of deaf people would do it, but it was less of a profession until later. And so when I was doing it, there still and there still actually isn't enough interpreters, but there wasn't very many interpreters in New York. So I screened and I passed the screening. So I started interpreting. And at first, like it's like okay, cool, I can do my writing, all this. I learned that 
doing interpreting and being an artist of any sort is a fantastic combination because it's just different parts of my mind are being used. Because later when I came back from writing television, I tried to write for the web and write the stuff I wanted to write and I couldn't do it. I was exhausted by the end of the day of writing for the internet and then having to, and so I went back to interpreting. And then for a moment, I've always loved deaf people. I've always really enjoyed interpreting, but having written for television and plays, and then suddenly I'm back about to interpret a social security meeting and I call um, a dear friend and I'm like, I can't believe, you know, I, I stopped my career in television. I moved back to New York and now what am I? I'm back to where I was before I got the TV gigs and like, what am I? And I was really like down on it. Not that I didn't like it, but I just felt like as an artist, you know, right. I want to where always I be, be doing my art. Yeah, and you're right? always Which comparing yourself realistic. to other people. No. In America, it doesn't happen right. other than for this many people. I mean, even like I have a friend who's like now published six novels. He still needs to have a day job. You still need a day job when you are a novelist. You can write for TV. When I'm writing for TV, great. I don't need another job. But if you do any of these other art forms, you need a job. Even sometimes as a TV writer, you're going to need another job. Right. What's cool about interpreting is it's a phenomenal job. I'm constantly in different places. The deaf people are amazing. Uh, the teams sometimes are good, sometimes they're not. But uh, deaf people are great. The jobs are fascinating. And then bit by bit as I started doing again, doing more complicated jobs, doing a lot of college interpreting and medical interpreting, I like really fell in love with being an interpreter as well. I mean, I think of myself first as a writer, but just – a hair below that. You know, I'm a sign language interpreter and I'm very proud of it. Uh, but it really helps to make sure you love your plan B. I mean, when you're talking to young people, I'm like, okay. I was talking to a, a young writer the other day and I'm like, he's about to graduate with his MFA. And I'm like, find something. I mean, he might actually become a professor because he has his MFA, as do I. But when you're doing your MFA and you're a professor, you have to read people's garbage i mean stuff writing um but it's like a lot of work and a lot of mental work right whereas my mental work happens in the moment i'm doing the interpreting but whatever you do make sure you love it because it's gonna be a lot of your life to support your other art so make sure you find something that either isn't taxing or is fun hopefully isn't taxing and is fun but always put your art first i make sure i'm a morning writer so i don't take jobs before one in the in the afternoon I do my writing in the morning, then I do my interpreting work. And I just stick to that. But I, I, I had to develop that as I went along. I had to get a little bit less afraid about saying, okay, well, what happens if I don't take morning work? Guess what? The night work shows up uh, for this. But I'm also very lucky that I have this other career as well. Not everyone are, is. And so like, I have to also acknowledge that. I was trying to remember where we met. My memory is that I met you at Book Soup. And we were there to see somebody's reading. And it was around really? the time you had your play Naked Will was showing in L.A. This is my memory. I don't remember whose reading it was, but I seem to remember you at Book Soup. We were there to see somebody read. I don't know. We didn't, I mean, I, we didn't meet through Howie or Chris Spinder or no? no. My memory is that it was just you. And we, I think we were both early. Anyway, that's my memory. That's, that's you, actually, you have an amazing memory. I'm always early because right. I have this obsession about being on time. Right. Um, I remember being a book soup for reading. It was gay. 
I know. I, I don't know who it was. Or I what don't it was. remember. That's my memory. When was Naked Will showing in L.A.? Your Craig Chester? Baby. Craig Chester's reading? Might have been. Right so on. probably 2002, I think. Maybe. Nice. And I also remember that you worked on Queer as Folk. For, uh, I did. For the- that was my first TV gig. I, yeah. I did an episode of Queer as Folk, which won this award called the shine award my episode uh so i'm very proud it won an award it wasn't really a big fancy award but it was the only award that season that the show won there you go yeah, i did work on that what what's your favorite memory of that experience getting the job is always the best part right. um getting the job I mean, if you want to hear, do you want to hear an interesting story about it? Yes. Kind of like a, a little bit like little inside baseball story. Yeah, we love that stuff. Um, I mean, Especially I'm not say, now that Queer's Folk is coming back. Yeah. 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 It was, I was in the second season and uh, a couple, I mean, so, you know, how, for people that don't know how a TV show is written, you have a writer's room and the writer's room will function differently depending on what show you're on. Right. In our writer's room, uh, we would all like kind of together break the arc of the season. Then we would break the stories for the episode. Then whosoever episode it was goes off and, and does a more detailed outline. And once that's approved, you go and you write the first draft of the script. And on our show, you gave that script to the head writers and then they would rewrite it to whatever quality they thought was okay. Right. Okay. Um, and, uh, what happened with me was all, well for one thing they they gave me this episode where Michael uh learns that his partner is HIV positive. Now that was like the story of my first my first major relationship in my life and my second relationship in my life and lots of relationships in between in my life the uh people revealing to me that they were HIV positive during the period of, of AIDS much earlier than where, when queer's folk was set. And the episode was originally, he reveals he's HIV positive, Michael has some problems with it, but then accepts it back into his relationship. <laughs> then they're like, this is too good of a story. We're going to separate it into two episodes. Blair, you write the part where Michael rejects him. Now, my second partner in, in my life, who I love very dearly, is still alive and living with HIV. And like, I'm like, I don't want to write an episode where he just rejects the guy, right. you know, you know, and I was just like, Oh, I don't want to write that. Uh, but I wrote it, but also during this time, and I'm an open book about this. I was also an active drug user, <laughs> like very active drug user. I didn't, while Does I that was mean you LA, were, you would work out while you were using drugs. Did you mean active physically? <laughs> like you would jog? And- I would do running Canyon. Actually. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I would. Um, but so this was in 2001. Um, I didn't live in LA yet. I was, I, I went to LA to break the story with them because I wrote for the web. That's right. how I got the job. I was writing journals for the characters on the web. Um, like I would, in my mind, I was kind of like fixing the things that didn't make sense in the story for me. I saw that episode. Let me, here's, I, I've got it. Yeah. Like, uh, so Michael said this and it doesn't really make sense with this next episode. Yeah. So I would write journal entries to try to fix it. In my mind, I'm like, that, I'm like very big on making sense when you write something. Yeah. Um, oh, that's so good. Never, ever hear this show. Yeah. Um, but anyway, but then they liked my writing a lot. So they hired me to write this episode 
but in the meantime, like I'm a big old drug addict and I'm trying to like control myself. Don't like use while we're I'm in LA. I come back and they're like, okay, wait, we'll get to rewrites in a couple of weeks. I start partying again. Um, I get a call in the middle of being totally blotto out of my mind. And they're like, okay, you know, get on the phone in a half an hour. We're going to give you notes. Oh, right. Exactly. For the the listeners, Dennis, his eyes are widening. He's like, understands that feeling. So I'm in New York on a speakerphone. Mind you, 9-11 just happened on top of all of this. (laughs) So I'm in Chelsea. I saw the towers fall. The tower, I I woke up high or coming. I came to and I was still high and saw the second towers fall. And now they're having me uh, listen to their notes. Five of them or however around the speakerphone in L.A. And I'm like, just write down, just write down what they say. Just write down what they say when you come down. They'll give you weeks to write this baby. Just write down what they say. And so I'm like just writing everything down what they say, writing everything down what they say. And then like have no idea what they said, but I wrote it down. And then like I'm like, so so when do you need this? And they're like. And this is like Tuesday, and they're like, how about Thursday? And I'm like, fuck, fuck. You know, it's going to take me a while to come down. Uh, Anyway, I wrote it, but I overwrote probably a bit too much. Um, And they did a ton of editing on it. Uh, But some of my stuff's still there. No, I just wrote wrote one speech for Sharon Glass. And I remember one of the notes I wrote down was, make this an aria. So you know in TV, a speech... An aria for a character's maybe an inch and a half long of dialogue, and I wrote like two pages. Of a you just went for, for broke. Class. You gave so, her one yeah. of those Julia Sugarbreaker uh, monologues, right? Right, but they uh, cut it down. They all right, down. and they ne- they never had any idea though that you were fucked. No, up. no, I told uh, some of my co-writers like later after yeah. I got sober. I've been sober many, 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 many years. Well done. Uh, now, now. Uh, after after that, yeah, but yeah. Speaking of speeches, I felt like my some of my favorite parts of your book, The Sign for Home, were was when a character fucking had it and and unloaded. And I could feel like you were having sort of fun with that or like it just felt good. And it felt good to hear it, it felt good for them to say it, and I'm just wondering if it felt good to write it. Like, yeah, Cyril fucking has it, it at yeah. one point. Arlo fucking <laughs> has it and he he unloads, you know, and it's it's I, those scenes were really fun or it was powerful. A of, it was a lot of um, so many times as an interpreter, especially like now as a seasoned interpreter, I was having the moment that I would want to have, like screaming at the hearing people for being stupid about like interfacing with a deaf person in a really dumb way. When I was young, when I was first interpreting, I had some of those scenes myself, but learned, you know, let the deaf person have those scenes if they want, but the interpreter shouldn't necessarily be screaming at the hearing person. I had to learn that as a young uh, interpreter not to be screaming at the hearing people. But a lot of that's like wish fulfillment, but also like it's how I think. I I, I use all my own um, challenges in life. I make all the shit in my life gold. And one of the shit things that make my life gold is I'm a catastrophizer. When I'm walking my dog, when I used to walk my dog, uh, I would think, what if that person two blocks away kicked my dog? 
well, I would like lose it on them, but I'd have to try to control myself. My dog who's very protective would bite them. I would, they would start calling the police. I would start punching the police because they're going to try to take my dog. I'd be pulled up in front of judge Judy. She, I would like lose it on judge Judy and she would throw my ass in jail. That is a normal day in the head of Blair fell. So I use that when I write, to like have these scenes that I'm having all day anyway in my head. And as I grow older and more mature, I'm having less in life. Um, as somebody that's connected to the deaf community, what was Oscar night like for you when Coda won? Was that a big deal? I didn't watch the Oscars. It is a big deal for me that, that Troy won, Yeah, but I, I didn't watch the Oscars because I, no offense, Hollywood, but like that stuff, like gets on my teeth. Um, <laughs> I can no tell you another, <laughs> another funny story. Yes, I, like, so I have a, yeah. Go for this it. This is like, this is so embarrassing. This is such an embarrassing story, but I'm going to give it to you, Dennis, and never repeat this. Anyone that's listening, <laughs> do not repeat this story. Um, so, so like there's talk of like, hopefully making a book into a movie. Right. There's this w- wonderful director attached right now. We'll see what happens. I don't want to talk too much about that, but, when my book agent got the film agent, you know, on like maybe a year, like a year ago, maybe more than a year ago, I, he's like, well, do you want to meet this person? And I'm not actually saying the person's name and they're still the agent on the thing, but I'm about to say a story that's just an embarrassing story. Not for him, for me. So I'm just going to keep names out of this. Sure. Anyway, so Doug is like, you know, after time, it's like, are you sure you don't want to meet him? Because uh, I was like the second book I'm working on really would be an amazing TV series and stuff like this. Like, are you sure you don't want to meet? Uh, I'll, I'll say his name. His name's Rich and he's amazing. He's great. But I hadn't met him. I never talked to him for a year now. He's the agent repping the book in, in L.A. to make it a movie. And I've never met him. And so I'm like, sure. And, it's like, and you can meet these guys that are hopefully producing it and stuff like that and la, la, la. And so I'm like, fine. Now, now, mind you, I haven't worked in Hollywood since 2004, okay? That's a long time ago. And I had a great experience in the three years I was there and the years I was pitching and doing all that. I had a good experience, but I also hate all the bullshit of it. I right. hate that. Let's sit down and say something that has nothing to do with your TV show or movie idea. La, la, la. Okay. And then there's that, you know, the pause, the, okay. Oh, the small now talk we'll talk stuff where you talk about the, the pain. Small, yes. small talk. And yeah. then that pause, what do you got? Yeah. And then you kick your ass doing a pitch and they're like, I love it. It's amazing. It's incredible. And then they're working with you. It's like, do you mind writing this on, you know, spec first? And then we'll see what happens. Like all that bullshit. And like people just being nice because they think, you know, you'll be something or that they can, you'll help them or like all of that. People right. being nice because it's part of what you need to do in LA and you should be because I've seen baristas become producers and I've seen that you need to be nice to everyone. Don't be like me who spends most of their life burning bridges. I'm, I'm an expert bridge burner. Really? You burn the bridges, Blair. Uh, well, let, let me finish this story and you will be shocked. So <laughs> You're I had lighting all, a match. This, okay. all this trauma about my experience in Hollywood. I haven't done it for years. I got sober after that. La, 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 la. All right. And my experience working on California Connected, the second show I worked on was magnificent. Everyone on that show, I adore. I adore to this day. It, it was a 
public television, though. So instead of, you know, big wig Hollywood types, I had women with buns and tote bags. And they were amazing. I love that part. Yeah, they run so anyway, the world, so by the way. I, I go in this Zoom meeting. Maybe there were six people in it. I right. don't remember. But I see all the faces of these people I don't know. Um, and I – and meanwhile, before this, I have, like – a couple of people saying, Blair, you definitely, this is the other thing, you definitely should write the screenplay. I mean, I'm an award-winning TV writer on both shows, award-winning playwright. I mean, they never asked me in the year that I'm doing this because I'm not a famous TV writer. A famous, uh, There was a, a famous uh, film writer attacked, uh, who wanted to write it, but then he got a paying gig. But anyways, but they never asked me, and I was, I like thought, oh, I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that. I hate Hollywood. I don't be involved anyway. La la la. They peer on the screen, and my friends like, you should write the first draft, and like, you should also get a producer credit. And I'm like that, and I freeze. I see them, and and the one producer's like, Blair, we just want to tell you we love this book, and I'm like, stop. Oh shit. I want to be the first screenwriter, and I want a producer credit, and that's it. I don't want to do this. I don't want to. Talk to I hate this. This. Not you. Not you. Hollywood. I hate this. This. I hate. I, I, I know I'm like, maybe I'm losing it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry about this, but okay. Oh my and God. Like, that's I, what happened? Yes. Oh, oh my yes. God. So how did it all and, land? And that was the end of the meeting, basically. And they're like, well, I guess we heard that. And then the call was over, and I'm like, having this emotional hangover like i cannot believe i just, just did that happened? and i test text my book agent i'm like doug i hope i didn't I, I that was crazy i'm so sorry and he texted back we'll talk tomorrow mm. that was it that was it it's fine though all those people are still involved <laughs> right. but they know that i don't want to have meetings with them everything has to be filtered through the director blair is crazy it just it, i just i wouldn't do it again but i'm just for some reason, all the trauma all came, came back out. to me of, like, people being nice to me in Hollywood and not really meaning it. And no. I had just, like, this panic attack. Have you watched Hacks, the show Hacks on HBO? I just watched the first – I haven't seen it. Is it good? Yeah, I love it. But they're – near the end of the second season, they go and do pitch meetings. And I started having visceral, nervous energy in my body. Like, they are so spot on with the tone of those meetings where everyone's super nice, but they're, like – Oh, and I literally kind of had a mini version of what you're talking about. Nothing like that, but it was visceral. And so, yeah, it, to me, it's like that's scarier than Freddy Krueger. Like that, I would rather that to me is a, a horror movie based on my own um, history. I agree. Yeah. Um, I have a couple more questions for you. Um, what is your favorite sign in sign language? I love pa, which is a success achievement like. Ah, I love that, which is like two fingers, pointer fingers up towards your forehead, and they're faced in. Your hands are faced in, and then you, they turn out and lift up above your head. I like that sign a lot. Um, I like – I mean, there's the like a lot of signs for like, oh, wow, that's crazy. Really? Oh, wow, which is like – Oh, which is like your like your clawed hands going before your eyes, like like speckles performing for your eyes, or like this, which is like that's crazy shit. Which doesn't mean that words, but it's just like oh, it's just like that's just insane. I can't believe that happened to you. They're kind of like my favorite signs. Maybe I love a lot of signs. Is it fun to do music? 
when you're interpreting music? Not for me. No, not that. Into I it. don't. I don't. I mean, when I was brand new as a signer, I did it, and at that time, deaf people were like, "Ugh, that's hearing stuff. We don't want that." But then now, many deaf people, but not all, like sign singing. Yeah, interesting. Um, you picked this question from the observation deck. Your most impactful teacher. My most impactful teacher, I think, in the book, which was a, a man who's no longer with us named Gil Eastman. He was a professor at Gallaudet Un- College when I went there, Gallaudet University now. And he created this thing called visual gestural communication, which was a class that basically showed the foundation of how ASL was formed. And in the class, we had to dr- everyone was deaf except for me and one other hearing student, and we weren't allowed to use sign language in the class and we weren't allowed to um, use English and we created our own visual language in the class where we were given pieces of scripts and we had to come in and gesture, invent gestures that weren't sign and we weren't speaking. And if one of the gestures we created worked great and people could really see it. It was included in the thing. Anyway, he was this charismatic, blue-eyed genius of a teacher who had such heart and such kindness. He was deaf, very deaf, came from a deaf family and was just such a momentously wonderful teacher. I love that. You've mentioned a, a number of times that you love deaf people. What is it? What are the qualities? It's, it's the directness of, of deaf people. It's their sensitivity and like their strength and having gotten through and getting through this world. But it's like, it's like no nonsense. As I said, when a deaf person tells me I've lost weight, I know I've lost weight because normally they don't say that. Normally they're like, wow, you got fat since the last time you were here. So when they say something good, you can trust it. And that honesty and that directness, I mean, a deaf person can lie just like a a hearing person, but generally linguistically and in the community, there's that. But also I'm in a... I'm in the position of being in this wonderful place between the hearing and the deaf world. So my job is to facilitate communication. And to do that, I have to get into the mindset of the deaf person and the hearing person to an extent, but very much into the deaf person's mind and being. So it just kind of, I don't know, I just get to be in their in their in that moment for them. And it gets, it makes me a bit more, I think, empathetic and getting to know them better. And I just have found that, I, I mean, I can count on one hand in 30 years of the thousands of deaf people I've interpreted for, maybe five I didn't really enjoy interpreting for. Most people are just are just wonderful, and they're just people trying to get the rights, trying to make it in this world, and to pursue happiness just like the rest of us. And I'm there at least helping a little bit linguistically for them to get the information they need to get what they want. That's beautiful. Um, your book is available everywhere, right? It's available online in all the different places you buy. Wherever you like to buy books online, it's there. Are you doing any more readings or anything like like that? Uh, I have a reading in Provincetown Ooh, fun. Uh, in, uh, in August, nice. uh, on August 23rd at East End Books. I'm doing a reading there. Um, what's been Thank the you. feedback been like from the deaf community, the deafblind community? What have, you, uh, what have you been hearing? I get a lot of emails, very – the feedback – almost across the board has been great. I get it from a lot of people that have relatives that are deaf blind or deaf themselves or deaf or have usher syndrome themselves. And it's been very, very good. One it's, it's helping a lot of people. I, I can almost cry talking about this, about 
people that have family members who have Usher syndrome have like written me and like, this has let me understand a little bit more what they're experiencing and what the barriers they face are. Again, like the only people that can understand this are the deafblind people themselves or the interpreters that see both sides. They see the hearing people being stupid or not being stupid or or denying the deafblind person their rights. They see the things that can happen and the deafblind person obviously knows that, but a lot of the world has no idea. I mean, what's, you know, serial experiences, we interpreters that interpret for the deafblind experience all the time, which is this, oh my God, these deafblind people are getting so much from our crappy interpreting they are still able to gain so much because they're so damn smart because they've had to like get through life as their vision like in usher syndrome they don't start generally blind they start they have sight except for at night they go blind and then they start losing their peripheral vision and all through their lives they're readjusting what they can perceive of the world and it's very uh, heartbreaking for them because they could see this much yesterday and today they can only see this much mm. and tomorrow they may only see that much so they mourn that every time congrats on the book it's beautiful and i'm so glad to reacquaint with you after all these years i have a final question for you sure why do you write uh i write because it helps me make sense of the chaos chaos of the world. I think that's why I write. There's something about like all this, ah, I'm like, you know, ADHD mind going a thousand minutes and like to be able to see it somewhere. I write that. I certainly write because there's these things that I want to communicate about my experience and about the world. I write because I love to tell stories. Ever since I was a little kid playing with dolls, I wanted to tell a story. You know, I dressed my G.I. Joes like Anne Boleyn to like, you know, retell the story of Anne of a Thousand Days. That's not a joke. I really did that. I would put toilet paper on his head um, and give him the ceremony of the veil as a nun. And then with Anne Boleyn, I'd wrap his head and then cut his head off. But I, I, I think that's why I'd make chaos sensible, make sense out of the chaos. And I just like love telling stories that I'm, you know, to go on this adventure with the characters. Cause as I said, they just take me along and I follow like just doing their bidding. And I'm like that you're really going to do that. That's fucking cool. Go for it. And that's just thrilling. I'm so lucky. I get to do what I do. I hope everybody picks up the sign for home. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks, Dennis. Right. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Blair Feld. Check out his book, The Sign for Home. It's a terrific summer read, a year-round read, if you will. I loved it. All right, so this happened. Um, I had two outdoor movie-watching nights at a friend of mine's place recently. He has a great backyard setup. And the first night we watched the J-Lo documentary, Halftime. I've talked about J-Lo a lot on this show. But I really uh, enjoyed that documentary. What a jam-packed year she had and when you add on top of like the super bowl and not getting the oscar nomination and the golden globes and inauguration like she also had a documentary crew following her so it's just crazy um but i enjoyed it my fascination and love for j-lo has not waned and boy is she pretty she's super pretty um and i was into watching it and the intrigue behind the halftime show and how at the last minute the NFL decided they didn't want to have the cages. I don't know if you guys remember. There were kids in cages, quote-unquote cages. They looked like little gazebos. They were very beautiful cages, but that was part of her halftime show. And at the last minute, the NFL said no, no go on the cages. But they 
J-Lo said no. And so when we saw it on the actual Super Bowl, the cages were there. All right. I wonder what happened to those cages. That'd be fun to have. Maybe you could get married under one. Like, that's the thing that gay people can do. <laughs> this is a cage from J-Lo's halftime show. And the other thing I watched, speaking of sexy people, is a movie on Hulu called Good Luck to You, Leo Grande. And it stars Emma Thompson and an actor I haven't seen before named Daryl McCormack. And Emma plays a widow who hires a male escort to rock her world because she's never really experienced sexual pleasure in her marriage and she's never had an orgasm. And it's this series of meetings in a hotel room. Um, But it's really engrossing and the actor knocked me out daryl mccormack like he's beautiful he's someone that you could see you know hiring as a sex worker but his acting is so rich and deep and they are together they have great chemistry and emma has some nude scenes that are very memorable and and courageous and i liked what it was about so if you're looking for something uh you know a two-hander as they say um, you could tell it was made during the pandemic because there's virtually nobody else in it but one other person. Um, but it's, I, I loved it. All right, so those are my recommendations. Before I let you go, I want to give a shout out to AJ Sousa for mixing the episodes. Also, JB Bercy, who helps us out technically on the other end. My theme music is composed by Mark Daniels for placement music. That's it for this week. We'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye. Bye.